Hey everyone, I'm Andrea Ferretti, and this is episode 87 of Yogaland. Jason is back on the show this week answering your questions. And I was really lucky to snag him just before he is about to leave for London. He is headed to London tomorrow. By the time you listen to this, he will be in London in the midst of his module two of his 500 hour training there. I believe there's still room in module three, which is happening in April. And we also have trainings this year in San Francisco. And for those of you who come to the February San Francisco training this year, which is module one. And by the way, you can take them in any order. It can get a little bit confusing when you start to think about all the numbers, but they are not sequential. They're flexible because we know that yoga teachers need flexibility to take time off and to do this. Anyway, if you come to the San Francisco training in February, you will be a lucky participant in the very first live Yoga Land podcast. That's right. We're going to do a live podcast at Love Story Yoga just for trainees where it's not going to be open to the public yet because you guys are going to be the guinea pigs of all the, the technical stuff. And we'll answer student questions there. We will answer trainee questions there and then we'll, we'll broadcast it live for the world to hear. So I'm really excited about that. And if you want any more information about Jason's schedule, you can go to jasonyoga.com slash schedule. Or I'm going to do a much better job this year of including updates to his schedule in the newsletters that I send out. So if you've not yet subscribed to our newsletter and you want to stay on top of things, just go to our website, jasonyoga.com, and you can subscribe, sign up for our newsletter there. I don't send it out very often sometimes twice a month, sometimes once a month, and it's always filled with new content. Okay, so enjoy this next interview with Jason. Hi, Jason. Hi, Andrea. How are you? I'm pretty good. Getting ready to go to London, yeah? Getting ready to go to London. Tomorrow. Tomorrow. Can I ask you kind of a strange question? Sure. What kind of snacks are you bringing? What kind of snacks am I bringing? Yeah, you usually are very organized with the snacks. You know, I'm not that on it with the snacks right now. This I gotta time. say, almonds and chocolate, that's, fallback, that's, standard, classic. It totally classic. I don't like. I can't. I'm in this mode right now. I can't deal with any bars. You know what I mean? Like the bar, bar food. The stuff. bars are so confusing. Yeah. Depending on what you're sort of trying to optimize yeah. in your nutrition at any certain point. Yeah. So I think I'll just go 24 hours without food. <laughs> Try and get back to my baby weight. No. <laughs> <laughs> knowing you that's a that's a really really frightening idea yeah so were we talking about your baby weight when you were born Born. Yeah. oh wow yeah not even like when you lose like you no lose like you all this physical it. mass that i've developed in my peak years i'm trying to shed it all all right yeah it's a return to infancy kind of thing <laughs> okay we're gonna have to have another talk offline all right <laughs> Let's start with our questions for the week, shall yeah, we? Yeah, please. Okay. First question. How often should one vary his or her teaching sequence? Not often. <laughs> I'm going to read the whole question. Okay. Sure. Go As for a it. newish teacher teaching almost three years, I like to create a new sequence pretty much every week class to be in context with the day, weather, mood, season, etc. One studio requires music, so I create a new playlist for each class, too. I've been told by other teachers this is unnecessary, but I like a general guideline. My emphasis are gentle restorative, but I also sub for 
classic Hatha Vinyasa, and I'm YogaWorks trained. Okay. So this is one of the things that in the last couple of years I focus on really extensively in how I conduct my own classes. And it's one of the main things I focus on in working with teachers, with existing teachers. So the first thing that I want to say is the answer to this question a little bit depends on what you're trying to do when you're teaching yoga. And if you think about what you're doing when you teach yoga as a 60 or 90 minute individual isolated experience that exists in its own totality, then you can change your sequence as often as you want to change your sequence, right? Because it's a 60 minute or a 90 minute random event, right? If you think about it as this 60 minute and this 90 minute increment is part of a larger body of work in which I am trying to teach students a discipline, then you should not change your sequence often because that's not how people learn. Mm -hmm. So if you think about it like this, let's sort of take yoga off the table, right? Because sometimes we're sort of so close to something that it's hard to see that thing. So let's pretend right now that I was a violin teacher. And so I taught open level, mixed level violin class for 60 or 90 minutes. And there were no controls, there were no parameters, there were no prerequisites. You just came to class and I was going to teach you something. If I really want to teach you something, I'm going to have to have a consistent approach. I'm going to have to have a consistent methodology and I'm going to have to teach you the same thing more than one time, right? No one is going to learn how to play the violin or certainly not the violin well in 60 minutes or 90 minutes. So can you imagine trying to learn an instrument if you only played a song once and then you tried never to play that song again? You would be terrible. You couldn't do it. You just couldn't really develop the skill and from the refinement. Another situation, all the dancers, right? Or you can imagine dance. Like imagine you went to a dance class and you were going to do a 60 minute or a 90 minute dance class. And so it was going to be a playlist and it was going to be a choreography. If you just did that for 60 or 90 minutes, isolated and in a vacuum, you might get a good workout. You might totally enjoy yourself. You might enjoy the music. You might have a good time and it might totally be worth your while, but you're not really going to learn choreography well or dance well working that way. So the more as a teacher that we want to teach a discipline and the more that we want to teach technique and the more that we want to go beyond teaching like a 60 or a 90 minute increment of time where people feel good, the more we have to rely on consistency over time. So I'll tell you what I do. And then before I tell you what I do, think about this. Whether you like these styles or have experience of these styles of yoga or not, think about these. Bikram yoga, Ashtanga yoga, Baptiste yoga, sometimes Jiva Mukti yoga. Those are really set sequences and people like them. There's a structure. There's a structure. There's more than a structure. It's the same sequence, <clears throat> right? It is, it is a specific set sequence. Now, there are progressions of those set sequences at phases of time, but for the most part, those are set sequences because the educators of those systems are, are trying to build depth in a thing, right? And so now, again, there could be challenges. I'm not, I'm not speaking for it against it, but, but I will say those are extremely popular 
styles of yoga. Mm -hmm. So people actually really like consistency. Like I laugh all the time when I talk to students about this because I say, look, if someone is coming back to your class, that's not an indication that you need to change something. If someone is coming back to your class, that's an indication that they like that thing and continuity is a blessing. Mm -hmm. So for me, what I do to sort of bridge this gap of not wanting my classes to be random, but also not wanting my classes to be the same thing forever and always, is I teach pretty much the same sequence with the same focal points, with the same teaching points for somewhere between three and six weeks. I always say a month. But here's this. So this is what I want all the listeners to pretend that they're going to do, right? Pretend you, it's Tuesday night. You've come to my class in San Francisco, California. You're going to be around for a month. I'm going to be around for a month. And I say, hey, everyone, welcome. Thanks for coming to class. We are going to, like we always do, have an all-around balanced vinyasa-based class. You can do a little bit of everything, strong workout, lots of breath, all the good stuff, I promise. And we're going to have specific teaching points and focal points so that we can develop your skill and your depth and your craft for the next month. We're going to focus on strengthening your inner legs, your front of your hips, and your anterior abdominals. And then one more thing, in all of the classes for the next month, we're going to develop the whole Bakasana family. So we're not just going to do those things, but those things are going to have regular showings, right? And I'll say more or less, we're going to do the same stuff for a month. I can honestly tell everyone that the majority of yoga students actually really like that mm -hmm. and that the majority of yoga students then I have much greater retention because students are developing progress. Mm -hmm. Sometimes people can't do a pose because they're not strong enough. True. Sometimes people can't do a pose because they're not flexible enough. Totally true. A lot of times people can't do a pose just because they don't know what, they just don't know how to do it. And so when you are more consistent, your student base grows. It mm -hmm. grows in skill, it grows in depth, it grows in ability, and that leads to greater retention. Mm -hmm. You know, so I'll, I'll say one more thing about, think about like serial television shows, right? Sketch shows in the long run don't actually do that well because you don't build a long relationship with the characters. But if you think about most shows that have a sort of a long tenure, there is a couple of overriding themes that run an entire season or two. You have a big, long narrative arc, and then each show ends up standing on its own. So I think that's at minimum what we have to do, which is to pick a handful of teaching points and or teaching poses and be much more consistent for a long period of time. I promise this is the last thing I'll say about it, which is if you don't, you're gonna burn out. And you're gonna start to put things together that don't make any sense, right? Mm -hmm. There's only so many combinations that actually make sense and work and are biomechanically sound. Mm -hmm. And if so, we've if we overvalue changing things for the sake of changing things, we run the massive risk of inconsistency and the risk of just putting stuff together that doesn't, doesn't actually have an impact in the body or make sense. Right, right. Yeah. Okay. So they start out at the beginning of a month, let's say, and they let the students know what they're going to work on. Right. So you only teach three public classes a week these days. Oh, man, busted. Sorry. I, 
No, I know, no, I'm no, just yeah, saying, yeah. No, this is a good counter. This is a good counterpoint. What Go, if keep, you keep with are a teacher who teaches five days a week at one studio in the evening, five days a week at another studio in the morning, and you have students that come more than once a week to your class. Let's say they come three days a week to your class. Do you teach the same class I do. every time? I do. Wow. Yeah, okay. I do. In the same way that I truly believe a dance teacher would do this. If I was trying to teach you classical ballet, there is going to be, right? If you're trying you to happen teach- You happen to be talking to someone who was a classically trained ballerina. Okay. Here's what I'll tell you. Okay. You do the same warm-up in ballet all yeah. the time. It follows the same structure, yeah. but you can vary the choreography totally. slightly. But you stay with choreography more for more than one class, right? Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so the thing is, is like, let's say I'm teaching 15 classes a week. Okay. Well, that's fine. I'm going to get bored as hell. I'm going to feel repetitive, but no one's coming to 15 classes a week. Right. So I actually truly believe that if someone does the same choreography for four days, because they come to four of your classes a week, I personally don't think that's too much. Mm -hmm. I think that people get depth in that. And I think that that is a more compelling way of working than always changing everything. I actually think that we have this massive insecurity, this massive cultural insecurity around consistency. And the thing is, is like, to learn the technique of yoga, to learn the philosophy of yoga, to learn the process, the breathing, it takes an incredibly rigorous focus and it takes a willingness to, to be steadfast and to keep coming back to some same topics. Mm-hmm. So I don't think doing the same thing for four days a week for four weeks is too much. I really don't. Mm-hmm. Now, again, I'm not saying people have to, but, but it's, it's my approach. And, and I also, I'll say one more thing on the topic, which is since most teachers don't work this way, if a student doesn't want this, they'll find another teacher that does. But because most teachers don't work this way, when you are the only person or a community of people that is working in a more consistent way, the students that want that really want that. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the thing is, it's like, this is a separate topic, but the reality is most people actually want to make progress. Most people want in a yoga room to be able to go further and do things they weren't able to do. And you have to be consistent and develop skills in order to do, to do those things. Otherwise, you stay on a very, very sort of surface level of things for a while. But like, let's say Parshva Bhakasana, you're not going to learn Parshva Bhakasana or Ekapada Bhakasana. You're not going to learn any harder pose by doing it in a random sequence once every six weeks. Mm-hmm. It's just not going to come. So to me, to me, this is a place where I'm seeing so many students develop ability that they didn't used to have because they are more consistent. Okay. But again, I'm saying I'm, ch- I'm still changing this every month or two, my focal points and sequences every month or two. And again, if you look compared to those sort of other disciplines that are massively popular, those don't change really at all. Right, right, right. Right. Until you quote unquote progress to the next yeah, level. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So those are my thoughts. So this is a similar question, but with a slightly different slant. Uh, as a teacher, how do you maintain consistent themed content for your regular students and still bring the huge influx of new and returning students into the fold? These next three months, the studio is packed and I'm finding I'm already defaulting to a more general 
well-rounded flow. So she's talking about new, yeah. it's the new year, right? Yeah, it's the new year. We, we, we ask for these questions right around the new year. Yeah. yeah. I find I'm already defaulting to a more general, well-rounded flow to accommodate class size and new students. It has me feeling off from my usual focused content-based class style that you instilled during teacher training. So yeah. this is someone who understands your style totally. and is saying, I have all these new January newbies in yeah. my room. And so I'm doing a more overall practice. How do I manage that in my head? Yeah. Hold the course. And here's the thing. Hold the course in terms of doing the overall practice. Stay consistent. So here's the thing. So then let me make some clarifications, which is all vinyasa classes should be a very good all around flow and they should have focal points. They should have teaching points. So when I teach, for example, in the month of January, when I teach strengthening inner legs, strengthening hip flexors, strengthening abdominals, those are focal points for me. And when I teach the Bakasana family, those are focal points for me. I still do standing pose sequences. I still do salutations. I still do spinal strengthening. I still do hip opening. Everything I always do is always in the framework of a balanced sequence, right? So it's always going to be a balanced sequence. The only question is whether or not you maintain specific focal points for a period of time or whether or not you do a very general class without specific focal points within that general class. And so that's where I say hold the, hold the theme, which is, or hold the focus, right? And here is the challenge, whether it's the new month and there's a bunch of new people or not, which is, let's say, because I think I really think that this is the, the issue that's being asked here, right? Which is, let's say you keep a consistent class format or theme or focus. You keep a consistent sequence for a month, right? Well, there's going to be some people that on week four have been coming to that class for that whole time. And then there's going to be some people that show up on week four and haven't been doing any of that stuff yet. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Right? Well, the thing is, this is how it's always going to be, whether you keep a focus or not. Because we're typically working with a drop-in yoga situation, and people aren't going in cohort groups from time A to point B, no matter what you do, there is going to be people that have been in your class yesterday or the week before, and there's going to be people that have never been in your class. Mm. So no matter what you do, the nature of contemporary yoga teaching is going to lead us into this challenge. Does that make sense? Yeah? Yeah. So for me, what I always do at the beginning of class, let's say I'm on week four, right? It's the third week of January, okay? It's the third or fourth week of January. I'm going to say this. I'm going to say, okay, thanks for being in class. Those of you that have been here for the last couple of weeks, you know what we've been working on. We're going to stay with that. We've been working blah, blah, blah. I just said it, right? Those of you that have been here, you know what we're going to do. We're going to continue to build depth and skill in this all around vinyasa class, but we're, we're still working on these specific points. Those of you that haven't been practicing us for this entire month, don't worry, not a problem. This is an all-around balanced vinyasa class. But the way that I typically work is I like to keep specific teaching themes so that you're able to make progress within specific poses and learn a little bit more over time. And then when the class is over, I just remind people of what they did. All right, you guys, we focus on this stuff. If you loved it, great. 
We're going we're gonna to stick with this a little bit longer. If you did not love it, great. You get to continue to work with not getting what you want. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. you get to continue to make a little bit of development. And, and let me just remind you, like, if I decided right now, like, what's something I've like never, I don't know, I'm trying to think of something I've never done. Like, okay, skiing, right? Let's say I went skiing. And I went skiing once, or I went skiing twice, or I went skiing three times. I shouldn't expect myself to be anything other than novice, mm-hmm. right? So to me, in all my classes, I want to make sure, and I'm not just saying me, I want to help the audience, is, is make sure that we help people understand that wherever they are in this process, they are totally welcome, and they are joining a process, they are joining something that is consistent. They've they, there's a river here, mm-hmm. and they're just entering the river at a different little phase in time, and they're totally welcome to join it. And the only way they're going to learn is if they stay in it for a period of time, mm-hmm. you know. But not everyone's going to jump in, and not everyone's going to jump out at the same period of time. But that doesn't mean that every class should be overly general, because then the people that have been coming for a long period of time suffer with having a generic experience. Yeah. And I just think that that we can elevate the quality of yoga education by doing this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Instead of jumping into the river, could they jump on a bus? They could jump on a bus. You know, the stops, get on and off. Better than a bus? I don't know. A what? train. A train. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay, last question. You often speak of allowing the pelvis to move away from square in twisting poses, and this decreases tension on the SI joint. Pause, pause. So before you go on further, because it's not, this is not being set up correctly. The way that it's being written, it's not being set up correctly. Okay. I don't ask the pelvis to come away from square. What I ask the pelvis is, I allow the pelvis to rotate on the femurs a little bit in the direction that the spine is rotating. Okay. So let's say I'm going to twist to the right. Instead of keeping the pelvis fixed and just rotating the spine to the right, I encourage the pelvis to rotate on the femurs a little bit to the right before the spine rotates to the right. So that's that's the sentiment in there, but I wanted to drop okay. off of that square okay. idea. So the question is, this person is wondering, when he does this, will it potentially create risk in the hip joint of the front of the leg by impinging on the inner labrum by bringing the joint off center? I know there's a huge spectrum of degrees and there's no such thing as a blanket answer, but I've been playing with this in my body to care for herniated discs and unstable SI. I want to avoid protecting one joint and sacrificing the other. Totally. Totally. Okay, so here's the deal. So just to sort of rewind, which is, to me, the most important mechanical relationship in the body as it relates to yoga is the relationship between the pelvis and the spine. Mm -hmm. 
And the first thing to really sort of step back into and understand is that functionally pelvis and spine are not divisible separate units. The spine is sort of like uh, the tree, the trunk of the tree and the roots of the tree, okay? They're two parts of the same thing. So the spine doesn't really start on top of the pelvis. The spine blends into and becomes the back of the pelvis via the sacrum and the tailbone, right? And so one of the major things the spine does not want is an abrupt change of position or excess local stress, okay? And so when you do a forward bend, for example, you don't keep the pelvis fixed and then rotate the spine forward. You rotate the pelvis forward over the femurs, and then you rotate the spine forward over the pelvis. Similarly, in backbends, you don't keep the pelvis fixed and then rotate the spine over the pelvis. You rotate the pelvis backwards over the femurs, and then you rotate the spine backwards over the pelvis. So the pelvis and the spine want to work together, and the pelvis is usually initiating the motion. So when it comes to twisting, for the exact same mechanical logic, instead of holding the pelvis fixed and just rotating the spine, I encourage people, as do a lot of people, as do a lot of yoga teachers, including doctors of physical therapy that teach this pose this way, that encourage the pelvis to rotate a little bit in the same direction that the spine is rotating to offload potential excess stress in the sacral lumbar area and in the sacroiliac area. Make sense? Mm -hmm. So that's the whole setup. And so really the question, which is a good question, I just wanted to clarify that, how it was phrased at the beginning, because the square things can really throw people off, is can rotating the pelvis, let's say I'm twisting to the right. And and like, do you want to give a pose as an example? Yeah. Let's make it really easy. Let's say... uh, uh, twisting parsvokanasana side yeah, angle. So, yeah, yeah. Twisting side angle. Okay. High lunge, high lunge twist, crescent lunge twist. Got it. Or revolve triangle pose. This is going to be the same thing. And I'm turning to the right. My right leg is forward. My left leg is back. I'm in crescent lunge, and I'm going to do crescent lunge twist parivritta parsvokanasana to the right. Okay. So I take my left elbow to my right knee, and instead of keeping the pelvis fixed and just turning the spine to the right, allow the pelvis ever so slightly to turn to the right as you turn the spine to the right. Mm -hmm. Now that's that's a very, that's a mild twist, but but it's the easiest one to set up. It's probably a bigger deal with deeper twists like Marishasana C and so forth. So this is actually a really interesting question that's being asked, right? Which is, as I allow my pelvis to rotate to my right, while I turn my spine to the right to decrease sacroiliac joint pain, am I potentially compromising the hip joints? Right. The anterior that hip front joint. Hip. Right now, right? And so the the answer to this question honestly is maybe. Yeah. I don't know. It depends. On your body. Not inherently, but could it happen? Yes. Are you gonna know if it's happening? Yes. And here's why. Here's why. So not to put the fear of the universe into people, but if, if, if people start to learn a little bit more about FAI, femoral acetabular impingement, 
what they're going to see is that, well, first of all, everyone's going to think they have, it's one of these things. Like I have a, I have a PhD from WebMD. So don't get me, you know what I mean? That's, that, that's my only medical degree is from that institution, right? <laughs> so the thing is the situation in which femoral acetabular impingement impinges upon the femur in the acetabulum and therefore maybe can trouble the labrum, which he's brought in, okay, is when the femur is adducted, internally rotated, oh. and flexed. Okay. And when you allow the pelvis to twist a little bit more, that does in fact adduct the femur, maybe slightly internally rotate the femur, mm -hmm. and the hip socket is flexed. Mm -hmm. So if you had FAI and or if when you did what I'm suggesting, it felt good in the back, but it pinched strongly on the front of the hip on the sides you're moving, it's not worth it. Mm -hmm. Some of that technical language can be hard to follow. So I'll, I'll sort of say it again, which is if you're doing a twist to the right, it can be to the left, obviously, but right, if you're twisting to the right and you're allowing the pelvis to turn a little bit to the right. And when you do it, the side that you're moving towards, that right side, not on the outside of the hip, not on the back of the hip, not in the hamstrings, but in the groin area, if that feels really pinchy and painful, then don't mm -hmm. rotate the pelvis on the femur. Right. I wouldn't teach this if I didn't know that this is a reasonable thing to teach. But like every teaching, we have to sort of step back and say, well, if I do X, it does that maybe have some consequences that I might need to manage. Mm -hmm. And no matter what you do, there may be some consequences you have to manage. If you don't rotate the pelvis, there's a greater likelihood of consequences for sacral lumbar issue. Mm -hmm. If you do rotate the pelvis, then you have to be really tuned into to this. And, you know, to be totally frank, I hadn't really thought about this combination in this term until this question is asked. And now it's one of those things where, yeah, totally, this is, this is something to pay attention to. So the upside of this is in most situations, you are going to feel that impingement. That, that's sort of the nature of impinging upon right, something. Right, right, right. Stuff is running into stuff. Right. And also, there's a lot of stuff in, a, in this sort of pinchy scenario of the top medial part of the hip. There's a lot of things that can be pinched other than your acetabulum and your labrum. So we don't, we don't, I don't want to get into a situation of making the assumption that if, you, if something is being pinched in there, that it is acetabular impingement or femoral acetabular impingement. Because there's tons of soft tissues, there's tendons, else. there's yeah. ligaments, there's a couple of bursts in there. Like there's a lot of things that can be pinched. So that, you're saying don't panic. Yeah, I'm saying don't panic. Yeah, okay. Yeah. This is a big, interesting understanding of the body and it, putting in a very simple term, pinching on the side of a joint you're moving towards 
is usually not something to work through. Mm -hmm. It's usually something to try to work around and avoid. Mm -hmm. And the way you work around it and avoid it is by changing intensity and changing a little bit the joint articulation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cool. So really, yeah, these these are really, really, really good questions. Yeah, that was a good question. I mean, they they all are. And we had a bunch of really great questions that we just didn't really have time to tackle. So I want to thank everyone who asked the questions that we did answer. And I want to thank everyone for asking the questions that we didn't answer. We still pay attention to that stuff and that means a lot to us. Yes, absolutely. Yep. Thanks, Jason. You're welcome. Thanks for listening, everyone. I'm going to put a link to a blog post about twisting and moving the pelvis that that Jason wrote a while back. It's the blog post that question number three in this podcast about the sacrum and the hip labrum. It's the blog post that explains what the basis of that question came from. (laughs) I hope that all made sense. Anyway, go to the show notes page, yogalandpodcast.com slash episode 87. I want to thank Daniel Schaefer, who produces this podcast, and I want to thank you for listening. Don't forget to leave a five-star iTunes rating and review. It helps move the podcast up on the pages of iTunes so that more people can find it. Thanks so much, and until next week, enjoy your practice. Days I spent behind desk of a 